part two chapter four of faces in the fire and other fancies this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. faces in the fire and other fancies by frank w borham part two chapter four a forbidden dish i was at wedge bay it was raining wondering what i should do i remembered the great caves along the shore for ages the waves had been at work scooping out for me a place of refuge for such a day as this i put on my coat slipped a novel in the pocket and set off along the sands i soon found a sheltered spot in which i was able to defy the weather and to watch the waves or read my book just as the fancy took me as a matter of fact i had not much to read the book was sir walter scott's kenilworth and the bookmark was already near the end i read therefore until in the very climax of the tragic close i suddenly came upon a text or perhaps it was less a text than a reference to a text casually uttered in a moment of great excitement by one of the principal characters in the story but it acted on my mind as the lever at the switch acts upon the oncoming railway train in a flash the novel and all its thrilling interest were left far behind and i was flying along an entirely new track and here are the words that so adroitly changed the current of my thought oh if there be judgment in heaven thou hast well deserved it said foster and wilt meet it thou hast destroyed her by means of her best affections it is a seething of the kid in the mother's milk almost involuntarily i closed the book slipped it back into my pocket and sat looking out to sea lost in a brown but interesting study two thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk the striking prohibition occurs three times twice in the book of exodus and once in the book of deuteronomy i do not know on what principle we assess the relative value and importance of texts but surely a great commandment thrice emphatically reiterated ought not to be treated as beneath our notice i find that the interdict applies primarily to an ancient eastern custom all nations have their own idea as to the special delicacy of certain viands we british people fancy lamb and sucking pig and feel no shame in destroying the tiny creatures as soon as they are born the predilection of the arab was for a new-born kid and when he wished to adorn his table with a particularly toothsome morsel it was his habit to serve up the kid boiled in milk taken from the mother it was against this favorite and familiar dish that the stern and repeated prohibition was launched i do not know if there was any practical or utilitarian reason based on hygienic or medical grounds for the emphatic decree perhaps or perhaps not some of the old commandments relating to animals seem to have been framed for no other purpose than to inculcate a certain gentleness and courtesy in our attitude towards these poor relatives of ours thou shalt not kill a cow and her calf on the same day thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn and so on 
it is difficult to see any real reason why the ewe and her lamb or the cow and her calf should not go to the shambles together but it was strictly forbidden and similarly thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk the finer feelings are certainly shocked at the thought of the cow and the calf going together to the slaughter and at the idea of boiling the newly born and newly slain kid in the milk of its mother and the most obvious moral seems to be that we are not to treat the creatures of the field and the forest in any way that grates and jars upon those finer instincts as i sat watching the foam playing with the strands of seaweed it seemed to me that if ever i am asked to preach in support of the society for the prevention of cruelty to animals i should have here a theme all ready to my hand and i felt glad that i had read kenilworth three but the prohibition goes much farther than that it enshrines a tremendous principle a principle that is nowhere else so clearly stated sir walter scott evidently saw that and no exposition could be clearer than his the circumstances were briefly these the countess of leicester was a prisoner just outside her room at the castle was a trap-door it was supported by iron bolts but it was so arranged that even if the bolts were drawn the trap-door would still be held in its place by springs yet the weight of a mouse could cause it to yield and to precipitate its burden into the vault below varney and foster decided to draw these bolts so that if the countess attempted to escape the trap would destroy her later on foster heard the tread of a horse in the courtyard and then a whistle similar to that which was the earl's usual signal the next morning the countess's chamber opened and instantly the trap-door gave way there was a rushing sound a heavy fall a faint groan and all was over at the same instant varney called in at the window is the bird caught is the deed done deep down in the vault foster could see a heap of white clothes like a snowdrift it flashed upon him that the noise that he had heard was not the earl's signal at all but merely varney's imitation designed to deceive the countess and lure her to her doom she had rushed out to welcome her husband and had miserably perished in his indignation foster turned upon varney oh if there be judgment in heaven thou hast deserved it he said and wilt meet it thou hast destroyed her by means of her best affections it is a seething of the kid in the mother's milk at that touchstone the inner meaning of the interdict stands revealed the mother's milk is nature's beautiful provision for the life and sustenance of the kid thou shalt not pervert that which was intended to be a ministry of life into an instrument of destruction the wifely instinct that led the countess to rush forth to welcome her lord was one of the loveliest things in her womanhood and varney used it as the agency by which he destroyed her she was lured to her doom by means of her best affections charles lamb points out in his tales from shakespeare that iago compassed the death of the fair desdemona in precisely the same way 
so mischievously did this artful villain lay his plots to turn the gentle qualities of this innocent lady into her destruction and make a net for her out of her own goodness to entrap her it is this that the prohibition forbids thou shalt not take the most sacred things in life and apply them to base and ignoble ends thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk for the possibilities of application are simply infinite there is nothing high and holy that cannot be converted into an engine of destruction a girl is fond of music the impulse is a lofty and admirable one but it may easily be used to lure her away from the best things into a life of frivolity voluptuousness and sensation a boy is fond of nature he loves to climb the mountain row on the river or scour the bush nothing could be better but if it leads him to forsake the place of worship to forget god to fling to the winds the faith of his boyhood and to settle down to a life of animalism and materialism he has been destroyed by means of his best affections or take our love of society and of revelry there are few things more enjoyable than to sit by the fireside or on the beach with a few really congenial companions to talk and tell stories and recall old times to laugh to eat and to drink together talking and laughing and eating and drinking seem inseparable at such times and yet out of that human and therefore divine impulse see the evils that arise look at our great national drink curse with its tale of squalor and misery and shame did these men mean to be drunkards when first they entered the gaily lit barroom nothing was farther from their minds they were following a true instinct the desire for companionship and congenial society they have been lured to their doom like sir walter scott's heroine by means of their best affections five and what about love love is a lovely thing or why should we be so fond of love stories the love of a man for a maid and the love of a maid for a man are surely among the very sweetest and most sacred things in life no story is so fascinating as the story of a courtship and that is good altogether good every man who has won the affection of a true sweet beautiful girl feels that a new sanction has entered into life he is conscious of a new stimulus towards purity and goodness and every girl who has won the heart of a good brave great-hearted man feels that life has become a grander and a holier thing for her as shakespeare says indeed i know of no more subtle master under heaven than is the maiden passion for a maid not only to keep down the base in man but to teach high thoughts and amiable words and courtliness and the desire for fame and love of truth and all that makes a man lord lytton illustrates this magic force in his last days of pompeii he tells us that glaucus the athenian had seen i own bright pure unsullied in the midst of the gayest and most profligate gallants of pompeii charming rather than awing the boldest into respect and changing the very nature of the most sensual and the least ideal as by her intellectual and refining spells 
she reversed the fable of Circe and converted the animals into men here then is something altogether good it is clearly designed to minister new life to all who come beneath its spell and yet the sordid fact remains that through the degradation of this same high and holy impulse thousands of young people make sad shipwreck six but of all things designed to minister life to the world the cross is the greatest and most awful its possibilities of regeneration are simply infinite and in its case the danger is therefore all the greater we preach christ crucified wrote paul unto the jews a stumbling block and unto the greeks foolishness but unto them which are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god it is the most urgent and insistent note of the new testament that a man may convert into the instrument of his condemnation and destruction that awful sacrifice which was designed for his redemption it is the sin of sins the sin unpardonable the sin so impressively forbidden by that ancient and thrice reiterated commandment whose significance sir walter scott pointed out to me in the cave by the side of the sea End of part two, chapter four.